0: What makes a good soft robotic design for real-world application? What are the criteria that makes a good soft robot design for real-world application? Since you speak about bringing the soft robotics to life,
1: right? So, what what makes a, a soft robotic design useful or appropriate for a real-world application really depends, uh, of course, on the on the application. Um, the, the idea of using soft materials in robotics is a concept that's been around for a very long time. I mean, we can look back decades, almost since the inception of robotics itself as a field, there's been interest in using rubbers and, and uh, fluids or, or gases uh, in within robotic systems. Um, and so there's a long history, a long precedent uh, of using these approaches. Um, what really I think matters in terms of good design practices um, is to, well, of course, really understand kind of what the use case is, what the needs are, um, and, and, you know, and how you approach that, of course, is going to be, you know, very different depending on whether you're talking about consumer products versus, uh, the, you know, medical applications, you know, versus, you know, something that, you know, a system that will be used in some kind of autonomous uh, type way. Um, but I would say the common theme uh, in terms of designing these, these robotic systems is really to examine the role of, Materials and 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 in particular the mechanics of materials uh, in the uh, operation of those robotic systems and so that's where I think kind of soft robotics stands out from more traditional practices in robotics where with soft robotics we really think about um, how functionality is governed by the mechanics of of materials and their deformation their ability you know their ability to, to to undergo you know strains and support you know stresses and 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 that's something that you know in, in you know, in in more conventional robotic systems, we don't think quite as much. Usually, in more traditional systems, uh, the uh, the the hardware is is cased, right? And so we try to limit uh, the amount of bending and, and you know stretching or deformation of materials, and and we typically try to to kind of avoid or, or move away from from soft materials or fluids, you know, that that might you know introduce deformability into our system, and so. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a right or wrong uh, in terms of how we use those soft material systems, but just this consciousness, this awareness of having kind of deformability and mechanics of these materials kind of at the forefront of the robotic functionality. That's really what distinguishes soft robotics from, from other practices in the field.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. Maybe the for, for mechanics of material here, can you give us an example how it could be beneficial? Like it's not very well used. Can you give an example for that? like weights could be very interesting and can leverage a design using the mechanics?
1: So there, there's quite a number of cases. Uh, I think, uh, you know, perhaps most famously, I mean, there are the uh, pneumatic actuators, the pneumatic artificial muscle. Uh, these are uh, uh, approaches to actuation that actually became popular, um, uh, you know, back in the 1940s and 1950s. I and mean, that's where we started to see uh, the development of these types of actuators and their use in automation and robotics. And, and one advantage of, of these over... Uh, other types of actuators, then, or, or even since, uh, is that these are actuators that are more pressure controlled or force controlled, as opposed to displacement controlled. And so, you know, there's certainly uh, cases in industrial automation and in robotics where you want to have very precise control on position or the displacement uh, of your actuator um, or, or of your end effector. But with pneumatic artificial muscles, um, instead of getting kind of precise control on on position, instead you're controlling the pressure. Uh, of your of your compressed fluid and and that allows you to kind of regulate the forces um, and that's especially important anytime you're dealing with robotic systems that interface say with the human body or maybe some some delicate objects where you, you don't want to kind of exert too much force or, or too much pressure um, if you're doing displacement control you know there's nothing stopping you from you know positioning the robot in a way that actually could you know harm or damage you know, whatever you're in in contact with. Whereas if it's force controlled, you always know that you're kind of being capped by whatever that pressure is that you're delivering, say to your pneumatic actuator. So I'd say that that probably is the, you know, the most well-known example. Uh, You know, another uh, common use of soft robotics uh, is for pick and place uh, operations. So using these as kind of robot grippers or or robot hands. Uh, And there again, um, you know, you have both the advantage of that that pressure control or force control uh, but you also have the, the um, kind of the series elasticity that goes with just using kind of rubbery materials uh, for um, your soft robot end effector. And so that allows you to um, conform to surfaces and, and you know, uh, uh, you know make contacts uh, where, again, stresses are being distributed over a larger area, uh, allows you to uh, handle much more delicate objects. I and mean, that's kind of why there's an emphasis on using soft robot grippers, say, for handling, um, you know, fruit and then, you know, or, you know, baked goods or, you know, uh, just food items, you know, more generally. Um, I mean, that's a, a really exciting use case, I think, for, for these, uh, for these types of systems. Um, so there, again, you can imagine that if we were using uh, uh, kind of more conventional approaches to, to uh, you know, robots where you had kind of motors or servos where you had kind of more precise control and displacement, then, you know, you really have to get it right in terms of getting perfect alignment, perfect positioning, because if you overshoot a little bit and you, and you uh, get too much kind of interpenetration, you could always damage uh, the, the the objects that you're handling.
0: Interesting. So I want to go back again for the paper you mentioned the term soft robotics, and I think that's was interesting uh, term. If you can elaborate, what do you mean by soft robotics, and what could it be relevant when we speak about bringing soft robotics? So
1: this idea of soft robotics, this is kind of a concept that, that we've uh, discussed here at Carnegie Mellon University. This idea that um, we felt that soft robotics was a little bit too limiting. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't really inclusive enough of everything that's going on in this kind of wider field of, of soft materials engineering, um, that not everything that we're doing within this domain is necessarily robotics. Um, so not everything we build uh, is, uh, you know, necessarily um, uh, you know, capable of, of actuation always, or, or maybe, it, you know, it has mobility or actuation, but it might not have intelligence. You know, you know, uh, and so uh, you know, if we if you kind of take the more textbook definition of robotics, it doesn't always apply to a lot of the types of systems that we explore with these kind of soft uh, material uh, uh, machines. So, so we kind of you know came up with this term soft robotics, you know, just to kind of distance it just a little bit, kind of from robotics, kind of more you know more conventionally, uh, just to kind of give us a little bit more room to to include other types of approaches to stretchable electronics and, and, you know, wearable sensors and, or, or kind of, you know, soft machines or end effectors that might have some, you know, ability to move, um, you know, but might not have uh, kind of intelligence or kind of feedback, you know, um, or kind of, you know, sensorized feedback the same way that kind of, uh, you know, more traditional robotic systems have. Um, so this kind of Uh, also allows us to kind of uh, engage a a much wider range of of researchers and then, you know, other types of stakeholders kind of within this community. So, so soft robotics is kind of, uh, you know, what we're um, uh, trying to uh, pursue here at at Carnegie Mellon. And it's something that I think, you know, you know, has its, has its appeal. And and I feel in some ways kind of does represent what the, you know, quote, soft robotics community more generally uh, is is doing. Uh, So it's just, it's purely semantics. I mean, You don't have to kind of use that language, but it's it's just kind of the terminology that we use here. uh, here.
0: So maybe I want to go for the the paper. I think it's interesting about using self-healing functionality besides electric conductivity. Can you tell about the story of the paper and uh, the procedure to get the whole features in one design? Since you mentioned low stiffness and also stretchability and self-healing and conductivity. So what is the formula to bring all this feature on this? For,
1: for a while, uh, we've been interested in tailoring the electrical properties of soft polymers using liquid metal. Um, so that's something we've been working on in my lab for for uh, quite a number of years now. And in particular, uh, we find that if you take microscale droplets of liquid metal, um, even, even kind of submicron, you know, down in nanoscale droplets, and you suspend those droplets within a, a soft material like, you know, silicone rubber, Um, that you can um, uh, 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 very effectively change its uh, electrical and thermal properties. Um, So if you have a high enough concentration of those droplets, uh, you can get these rubbers to be electrically conductive, or you can engineer them to have um, thermal conductivities that are almost as high as as just pure metals. Um, And and so we were interested in seeing if there are other types of soft matrix materials that we could extend this to. Um, So over the years, my group has also looked at Shape memory polymers, uh, materials like liquid crystal elastomer, and most recently we've been looking at at hydrogels uh, and, and also in the study of um, uh, uh, in particular organogels. So obviously, you know, plenty of folks have worked on on liquid metals and, and you know looking at stretchable electronics and, and devices, you know, with those materials. Um, you know, for even uh, you know much even bigger group of folks are looking at uh, all sorts of different hydrogels and, and organogels, and there potential use in in medicine and, you know, uh, and um, uh, healthcare products, but, you know, but also uh, electronics and sensing skins and things like that. Uh, And so it was kind of a, you know, a natural thing to think about, okay, what happens now when we uh, extend this liquid metal embedded polymer architecture now to hydrogels and then organogels and make those gels kind of the matrix material. So um, one of the challenges that, that we uh, encountered uh, with this, um, number one, is that if you just have those droplets uh, within the gel just by themselves, um, uh, you don't end up with a composite that that's electrically conductive, even at very high uh, loading fractions of, 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 that, of that liquid metal. Uh, and so one important uh, step uh, in, in this was to recognize that we had to also add um, micro flakes of silver. Uh, into our um, material system uh, to to basically um, create the little kind of bridges between those liquid metal droplets, not so much silver that would really alter the the mechanical properties and stiffness of the composite, but just enough to to kind of achieve uh, some degree of, of percolation between those liquid metal droplets between those those metallic inclusions. Um, so that was kind of one uh, uh, finding of this work um, and then uh, you know another important um, uh, observation was that if we wanted to create very robust uh, gels that would withstand tearing and you know that could you know, uh, you know self-heal and kind of stick back together uh, then we had to adopt you know some of these uh, emerging architectures and in particular this uh, PVA uh, borax gel uh, that, that another research group had reported on back in, in 2014 that, that we thought you know might be a good candidate uh, for creating a composite that was both mechanically self-healing but also you know thanks to these liquid metal droplets also electrically self-healing as well um so so you know this this is kind of how it evolved but it really started you know initiated you know from our work you know more generally with with looking at these liquid metal uh, rubber uh, or liquid metal polymer
0: mm-hmm. and can i ask you about the limitation if there's this limitation and one that is in the design process you still there's maybe trade-off in the design did you notice anything like trade-offs or- there's certainly
1: trade-offs uh, with this with this approach The material system, I mean, it has a really nice combination of high electrical connectivity, very low mechanical compliance, high stretchability, um, this ability to to self-heal, not just mechanically but also electrically, um, so you can almost immediately restore electrical uh, contact um, um, uh, or electrical connectivity when you you stick the material back together, Uh, but there are certain limitations. as far as self-healing goes, um, uh, the um, mechanical performance, like the strain limit, for example, is not quite uh, as great as it is after the material is, is stuck back together. Um, uh, the electrical conductivity is um, it's high, but it's still not as high uh, as it was uh, prior uh, uh, to damage and uh, self-healing. So there's certainly room for improvement there. Uh, and, and another uh, limitation of this is that we do see a great deal of electromechanical coupling. So although the conductivity is high, um high enough to support say digital you know electronics and you know high enough to power a motor or you know uh, you know other kind of power hungry type type devices um it that that connectivity does degrade a little bit as we stretch the material i mean that, that's common uh for silver filled um uh, uh or you know uh, silver filled uh, conductive uh, composites but it's something that uh, we don't see as much with these liquid metal um, embedded uh, elastomers. Uh, and so, ideally, what we'd like to have is no electromechanical coupling. So, uh, you know, even as we stretch these materials, we want the electrical resistance to remain stable. But in, in fact, we find that it does increase uh, as we stretch. So, certainly room for improvement. Uh, but but nonetheless, uh, I think as kind of a, as a first pass at, at a material that has these combinational properties, I, I you know, I felt you know, is a successful, you know, first step and something that we definitely wanted to share with the broader community.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So if I ask you, when you think about the improvement, what do you think uh, the factor that could solve this kind of limitation? That, when you think about that, what what that thing is? So I would
1: say that, I mean, there's there's two things uh, that, that we would look to uh, to further improve this. Uh, one certainly is on the on the polymer chemistry side. Um, you know, we're, we're adopting this um, PVA-Borax uh, chemistry from, from other research groups. And so there's still more that we need to learn and, and, and probably more that could be done uh, with um, uh, uh, improving the self-healing the properties of that. Um, and then on uh, as far as kind of um, uh, the electromechanical coupling... Uh, of the of the composite, um, that's something that I think we could improve through improvements in the microstructure of the liquid metal droplets and, and the silver flakes, or maybe even replacing the silver flakes with with some other material um, uh, uh, that that could still uh, enable percolation between those liquid metal droplets, uh, but not kind of introduce any any kind of um, uh, uh, stress concentrations that might. Uh, um, uh, lead to, to kind of the electrochemical the coupling that, that we do observe. Um, so, um, you know, there's still kind of more that we need to learn. I mean, um, you know, we were working with a, a polymer chemist here at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Chris Matajewski, who's, who's kind of a pioneering researcher in the, in the field of uh, ATRP, Atom Transfer Radical polymerization, and, and he's developed some really powerful tools uh, where we can uh, better tailor the uh, interfacing between the liquid metal droplets and the surrounding polymer matrix, explore a wider range of different polymer matrix materials. And so there could be some uh, pathways there uh, where we can um, uh, achieve both better microstructure of the liquid metal, uh, but also kind of, um, you know, look uh, at, at, at other types of uh, polymers and formulations uh, to, to kind of achieve the, the desired properties.
0: Interesting. So I want to ask you a little about the toughness. And since you mentioned, I think, in you earlier baby about this micro-drublet here, metal, act as inclusion in the matrix, and that's maybe deflect uh, if there's damage or cut whatsoever here. But in this design, how do you see the toughness um, when you consider the self-healing ability plus the electric conductivity? So
1: anytime you have heterogeneity in your material system, oftentimes you do see this enhancement and fracture toughness. Uh, and that just simply arises from the fact that you just get more internal interfaces, you get uh, uh, more energy dissipation, uh, and, and all of that can interfere with the progression of, of a tear or a crack uh, in your material. Uh, and so, you know, certainly heterogeneity is, is good, and, and we get that uh, by adding these silver flakes uh, and these these liquid metal droplets uh, to, to our material system. Um, and so you, you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, crack deflection or deflection of tears, uh, and that's something uh, that's... Um, aided uh, by the fact that these liquid metal inclusions are deformable. So as we stretch the material, um, we kind of uh, 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 will elongate these droplets into, into kind of these, these uh, interfaces uh, that kind of almost act like slip planes or shear planes that, that can actually redirect uh, a, uh, the, uh, a tear and then prevent it from propagating kind of in one way and then get it instead to propagate in a different way. Uh, And that also can be a a source of of energy dissipation and that can um, uh, contribute to an overall enhancement uh, in fracture toughness. And so these are all things that, that, you know, that that we observe. Um, You know, you can also observe fracture toughness enhancements by using kind of rigid uh, particle fillers as well. Um, So we haven't um, really uh, carefully examined the the fracture toughness of these uh, organogels with the silver flakes and, and the liquid metal. Um, but we know uh, that adding liquid metal to, say, silicon rubber can lead to a 25 or even 50 times enhancement in fracture toughness. Uh, and also, you know, there's, there's folks uh, uh, who, uh, you know, shown that, uh, you know, uh, uh, double, double cross-linked hydrogel networks, um, you know, uh, are... Um, uh, also, kind of capable of, of you know, pretty dramatic uh, enhancements and, and fracture toughness, right? So, you know, there's the certainly things that we could explore in terms of blending these different approaches together and, and getting toughness that that you know does far exceed anything else that we see with with soft materials, and and you know, the, you know, the kind of maybe even more on the scale of what you'd see with like ceramics, you know, or you know, kind of you know, you know, fiber reinforced kind of glassy materials or something. So. So there's kind of a lot um, uh, that, that, you know, is is possible there. And it's important uh, because one of the challenges uh, with using soft materials uh, is that, you know, it could introduce, um, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, know, reduce kind of load bearing capabilities or could make your robotic system more susceptible to damage or tearing or something. And so if you can somehow engineer your your kind of software materials or, or gels, Uh, to have high fracture toughness, then you have kind of this best of both worlds scenario where you're using soft materials that are very compliant, that are very robust, but that won't be susceptible to tearing and damage. Um, And so those are are definitely important design considerations.
0: Yeah. Could you please correct me here? Because uh, maybe I'm wrong, but when you have the self-healing capability and the toughness here, do you think there is like, they they are not going in the same direction. It's like playing one another. Is it right or wrong here? I don't know in the design that you have to. If you have a self healing capability and toughness, how does uh, it Well, definitely
1: you have to be a little bit careful. I mean, you know, there there isn't. I mean, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive to have both high toughness and then also self healing capabilities. Um, I mean, from a, a you know design standpoint, right? I mean, you you want to avoid tearing in the first place, right? And so if you had to choose one or the other, I mean, as, as a, as a design engineer i'd uh, generally go with a material that is more resistant to tearing you know that is more tough that won't get damaged in the first place um uh, so that i never have to rely on it on its self-healing properties right i mean um so i think if i had to choose one i would choose that um, but again uh, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive um uh you know you can have materials uh, that um you know are very tough, but also, you know, if they do get damaged, you know, they have kind of what this, what this material system, you know, is that, you know, that we introduced, but it has this ability to kind of stick back to itself and, and kind of restore some of those, those crosslinks. Um, uh, now, you know, with that said, uh, the, 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 the way that self healing works with, with our organogel composite uh, is um, through the formation of these hydrogen bonds um, uh, that basically form the crosslinks between the different polymers um, polymer chains within our hydrogel network and so you know those hydrogen bonds uh you know it's the same bonds that you know hold water molecules together you know they're quite strong but they're not as strong uh, as the chemical bonds uh used in in kind of cross-linking of of, say elastomers and and, and a lot of other other types of polymers right so you know i you know the 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 mechanism by which we achieve this this kind of self-healing through hydrogen bonding doesn't necessarily lend itself to composites that overall would have like, you know, the highest, um, you know, toughness or kind of a tear response. So, the, you know, I would say in practice, at least for these organic gel composites, you know, there is a little bit of that trade-off. Um, I mean, I, you know, I can, I can acknowledge that, you know, I will also say though, it, you know, you have to be careful in terms of how you measure and assess, um, that the toughness or the tear resistance of a material. I mean, ultimately, um, I mean, if you do like a notch test to to determine the the fracture toughness, um, um, you know, if you look at the amount of energy that's absorbed in your material, as I would say, you know, uh, especially kind of around the the, the crack tip or, you know, tear as it it propagates through, um, you know, a lot of that's going to be controlled by inelastic deformation and energy dissipation, you know, so you might record a very high fracture toughness, but that might be at the expense of a material that's undergone a great deal of inelastic deformation, uh, you know, or a material that has actually, you know, maybe torn and then resealed itself or healed itself, you know, during the course of that, um, you know, of that that damage, right? So, you know, those are all things that, yes, on paper you've achieved a very high fracture toughness, but the material at the end is not necessarily going to have the same dimensions, you know, or maybe even the same properties as the material before, you know, because it's undergone this kind of permanent inelastic deformation. You know, or it's, you know, maybe kind of locally torn and then healed itself, you know, right behind the crack tip or something, right? But, um, but, but you know, that, that's also kind of a consideration. For a lot of cases uh, in soft robotics or in engineering more generally, you know, it's not enough just to say, oh, the material has high fracture toughness. Oh, the material has, you know, some self-healing capabilities, you know, how, how, how cool is that? But it's also important that these materials uh, have a good degree of elasticity, right? That they have very low hysteresis. When you stretch it and you release it, the material should spring back to its, its original shape. And, and that's something that practically we know is important. You know, it's something that, that we definitely look for in our designs. But, you know, if we just, uh, you know, look at all the other properties of, of materials in isolation, sometimes we can easily overlook this one key important requirement that these materials also be highly elastic, you know, so that uh, that there isn't a lot of hysteresis between loading and unloading, and that there's not too much of that energy dissipation.
0: So since we cool then to end, I have a few questions. Maybe the first one, when you mentioned about using, for example, the material for power-hanging devices. Can you tell us more about that? Because I think it's very interesting when we speak about power-hanging devices and energy here. So can you elaborate more on that?
1: I mean, I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, exciting work that's been done in, um, Biohybrid soft robotic systems. Um, you know, I have quite a number of colleagues here at, at Carnegie Mellon. You know, folks like uh, Adam Feinberg and Vicky Webster Wood, and I mean, there's there's you know researchers throughout the world. You know, working on this on this topic. Um, so the nice thing of, of using um, soft polymers, you know, these these gels or these or these elastomers like silicone, uh, is that they, to a large extent, match the the intrinsic mechanical properties of a lot of these engineered tissue, um, and so they um, you get good kind of mechanical impedance matching. You don't get too much in terms of stress concentrations, and you have you can create scaffolds or substrates on which these um, engineered tissue. You know whether you're talking like a C two C twelve you know line of, of you know myoblasts of so muscle tissue, or you know if you're talking about some of the cardiomyocyte. Uh, 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 work that's been done with cardiomyocyte cells, you know, you have these these kind of muscle tissue that can kind of you know contract and and, uh, and function on substrates that can kind of that can accommodate uh, those deformations, at, you know, for, at those relevant stresses and, and on scales. Um, so I, I think that there's there's kind of a lot of exciting potential uh, with with creating bio- hybrid systems that might not have been possible with kind of more conventional robotic materials uh, and then. Architectures. So I don't myself, you know, work in the in the space as much. I mean, we've we've collaborated a bit. Uh, we've we had a paper uh, with uh, Philip Duke. He's a professor here in, in mechanical engineering as an appointment in biomedical engineering. Uh, and we looked at growing C two C twelve cells uh, on um, uh, substrates of these liquid metal embedded rubber composites, uh, just to examine biocompatibility and issues with cytotoxicity. So these weren't by any means biohybrid type systems, but by showing that under certain conditions that the, the cells could grow, that we had good proliferation, we had um, good confluency of the uh, uh, of the cells, and, and we were able to see some evidence of myogenesis of these of these cells, you know that that um, does indicate that we could down the road use these liquid metal embedded uh, composites uh, for applications in soft bio I just
0: want to ask you about the artificial muscle because I think it's um, it's interesting. I want to take your take. What does it take? to achieve artificial muscle that resemble the biological one?
1: There's been tremendous work over the years in, in actuators for robotics. And this includes uh, pneumatic artificial muscles and use of electrostatic uh, type actuators or um, shape memory materials. And so I think my, my sense is that we're pretty much at a point where the, a lot of the existing actuator technologies are actually good enough for, for doing most of what we need in robotics and automation. I don't see it quite as a um, a bottleneck. Um, uh, I would say that the kind of bigger bottleneck is how do we design these uh, systems overall in in ways that actually do things that are meaningful. Um, And then I think, so I think that the the actual building blocks for that in terms of the the soft instructional materials for the sensing and the the, circuitry and and, um, uh, also the the, the different actuator, um, technologies i mean i think they're they're they're, they're kind of all there uh, already um you know certainly there's there's room for improvement i mean we don't have any actuators that quite mimic exactly all the features of, of natural say skeletal muscle for example it's not even obvious that you necessarily knew, do need uh to, to, to mimic skeletal muscle i mean um uh, you know each one of these existing kind of engineered actuator systems kind of have their pros and cons uh, there's been a lot of really great review like, papers that, that you know go through all the different technologies and, and kind of you know, compare and contrast um and uh you know not just among themselves but also with, with skeletal muscle um i would say that you know some things that i like about skeletal muscle that would be nice to see more of in these engineered actuators uh, one is this this integration of the um uh, the actuation and the actual sensing itself uh and, and kind of this, this kind of you know motor sensory type type integration uh you can certainly achieve that with with existing um uh actuators but the way that natural muscle skeletal muscle can achieve that at, at scales that it achieves uh in terms of having just you know the bundles of all of these muscle fibers right and you can kind of control the um the, uh, you know, the you know the percent or portion of the muscle fibers that are actually engaged and um uh, you know in in actuation or, or performing contraction i mean that that's pretty remarkable uh and i don't know to what extent we have that that capability I mean we don't really have kind of Something analogous where we have kind of bundles, or you know, of these of these kind of muscle fibers that that can kind of have the same degree of motor sensory uh, type control. I've seen some uh, you know really cool work with you know even taking McKibben actuators and bundling them together and and getting you know some degree of, of control that way. I mean you know my group and, and others have looked at electrostatics, electrostatic clutches, uh, and then you can kind of scale that up and have have kind of arrays or stacks. Uh, of those i mean that that's kind of another approach um uh, you know not so much for the actuation but at least for kind of distributing how you know force or controlling how forces are distributed uh, within within actuator systems um so so i would say that um you know the 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 kind of that bundle fiber type architecture and the motor sensory type properties of a natural muscle still i think are are, um, you know quite quite interesting Uh, but as far as everything else goes you know in terms of work density in terms of dynamic range you know bandwidth frequency of actuation the you know the the actual range of motion um you know we we can kind of match or exceed skeletal muscle using a wide range of different um artificial you know muscle and actuator type technologies so i'm not i'm not you know too concerned i mean a lot of my own research uh, looks at um shape memory materials, materials like liquid crystal asthma. Uh, the reason that's attractive uh, is that these uh, are easy to process and interface with other materials. You can 3D print them, you can embed them with droplets of liquid metal. Uh, you can kind of do a lot of things that would otherwise be difficult uh, to do say with you know, pneumatic actuators. Um, and so I would say kind of the other um, uh, challenge uh, is to come up with uh, not so much new um, physics when it comes to uh, uh, artificial muscle, but to come with much more um, versatile manufacturing methods so that we can kind of print these or pattern these at, at a variety of length scales and then integrate them with a variety of different uh, materials. This is very difficult to do sometimes, you know, with with hydraulic actuators, pneumatic actuators, even a lot of these kind of elastomer, you know, or electrostatic base actuators. So that's kind of why I like to work with liquid crystal elastomer, just because it is more compatible with a very wide range of different you know, printing techniques and, and methods of, of integrating with with other uh, uh, materials but of course uh, shape memory materials have their limitations uh, they they tend to be uh, much more slow they're not as energy efficient in terms of converting heat uh, into mechanical work um, and so there's the a sort kind of open challenges there one last uh, 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 kind of um, uh, I should say kind of one yeah one last category I think of of actuators that I think you know could be interesting uh, are uh, something that we're looking at right now with uh, electrochemical reactions and so using say liquid metal uh, and performing uh, reduction oxidation on it with very low um, uh, uh, electrical uh, potentials uh, and then harnessing that to create uh, uh, soft actuators uh, and so that's something that actually scales quite nicely uh, if you can get your liquid metal droplets you know down to um, you know, sub millimeter length scales, you know, maybe even down like, you know, tens of microns, uh, then you can actually get tremendous work densities uh, out of these. Uh, and, and all with, with something, uh, you know, a system that's uh, very, you know, rapid in terms of its response, and it only requires very low voltage uh, stimulation. Um, but one of the challenges that we uh, uh, encounter right now, uh, with these uh, liquid metal based uh, electrochemical actuators, uh, is that um, they have to operate in an aqueous solution where you can get electrolysis, and so you do get this kind of gas formation—you know, hydrogen and oxygen gas—and so um, you know that that's not, you know, I mean that can be overcome. Um, you know that that that's not kind of a fundamental limitation, uh, but that just is something that will require better engineering uh, if we if we ever want to make these liquid metal type actuators practical uh, in robotics. Interesting.
0: Maybe full cushion here about 3D printing. What do you think is still challenging about the printing? For example, we speak about um, like printing complex geometry. Sometimes the conductivity is not the same. So I'm curious from your experience, is it more about the material or about the printing itself? What do you think the limitation to make a reproducible design and complex geometry, if you speak about here? Sensing, for example.
1: There's been a lot of great... Uh, advancements in in printing and you know additive manufacturing uh, for applications in soft robotics, and so looking and really expanding the the palette of materials so that uh, uh, can be patterned using three D printing and can be integrated together, um, so to kind of create uh, fairly complex uh, systems. Uh, and so um, you know it's it's hard for me to kind of um, uh, make critiques just because there's been such rapid you know progress and you know. You know, I, you know, I can kind of, you know, say what my criticisms are, but that that's going to change in just like a few months time as, as you know, more researchers get involved and, and you know, there's more output. Um, and so I would say kind of where things stand right now, um, uh, you know, there's when it comes to kind of shape memory materials, materials like liquid crystal elastomer, you know, there's been a great acceleration uh, in the ability to Um, uh, 3d print these materials and integrate them with liquid metal and and other types of you know functional materials to create you know quite um, complex uh, you know actuators and you know and and sensors and and also you know all sorts of kind of you know soft robotic type type systems Um, you know it would be nice to see kind of something you know similar with with some of the other uh, uh, methods of of actuation Um, that's not something that kind of quite as, as involved with, you know, certainly there's been work with kind of 3D printed pneumatic uh, actuators, um, you know, but, um, you know, as far as, you know, electrostatics go, and, you know, um, um, you know, the, there's kind of more work that needs to be done there. There's been a lot of really nice work with 3D printing of these kind of magnetic, you know, soft materials, um, you know, so, so that's kind of also something that, that's kind of a fairly new recent uh, development, uh, and so that will kind of create new opportunities as well. Um, so I mean it, it, you know, and of course with the biohybrid systems, right, and three D bioprinting, it, it's kind of been a lot of uh, you know, progress. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, there's still not a you know really robust you know way of um, you know creating high performance, say dielectric elastomer actuators, I don't think, or other types of other flavors of that in terms of electrostatic or even kind emerging of hydraulic and electrostatic you know type, type of actuators using three D printing based approaches. But certainly there's been studies on that. And there's certainly been progress. And so that's something also at some point. I'm sure that would be like the um you know principal way by which the, those material systems are, are uh, fabricated as well. Um, uh, one you know one practical challenge that, that we face sometimes, uh, uh not so much with the actuators, but with the stretchable electronics, uh, is that um the direct ink write approaches that we use uh for uh, printing um uh these, these kind of soft stretchable electronics, um we still struggle a bit sometimes with getting the really fine resolutions uh, that we need uh, for uh, interfacing with certain um, uh, pin architectures on, on surface-mounted microelectronic chips. So, I mean, if we're talking like hundred micron, you know, or hundreds of micron, you know, type type width traces, that that's kind of easy to do, you know. But we're talking like fifty microns and below. Uh, that that still is challenging with a lot of uh, inks, and you know, it very much depends on the rheology and the nature of the. You know, uh, of of the um, uh, the nozzle and, and the printing approach. So so that's something that I think what you want to kind of extend that down to these kind of um, uh, kind of more tens of micro micron like scales or even smaller. Uh, that's that's kind of pushing. Well,
0: I just want maybe the last question okay. about the soft robotics uh, market. I think this you already have the the entrepreneurship experience, I think I'm curious about you. point of view about soft robotics market. What is the state of the market and where do you think the opportunities, maybe, how many years do you think sh- should we have, like, a market for soft robotics?
1: Um, so, so there's already been, um, you know, really nice um, examples of soft robotic companies or soft robotic products that have been making really good impact uh, in the commercial space. Um, you know, there's been a, a number of university um where we where we do see um, good. Growth and, and usage of, of kind of, uh, you know, especially when it comes to soft robot grippers, you know, for example, and performing pick and place operations, right? Um, so that that you know is does represent kind of one you know growing um, segment uh, of, of the market um, that um, is. I mean, I don't know quite what the numbers are for that, but you know, it's it's you know probably at least twenty percent, you know, year over year growth, maybe up to around thirty or forty percent. Um, And there's a lot of uh, also a lot of kind of exciting growth opportunities with uh, wearable uh, systems in particular, exoskeletons and uh, human motor assistance. So that's kind of an area where, you know, there's already a lot lot of products out there and a lot of usage, you know, not all of these are powered, you know, some of them are passive uh, assistive uh, devices that are used for, say, employees working in some kind of warehouse or uh, or distribution centers. but that that's an area where there's um, you know a lot of op- opportunity and potential to use kind of soft robotic architectures and and these soft materials uh, to uh, enhance um, capabilities with with motor assistance and, and also kind of uh, sensing. So so that's kind of another area. Um, and of course, there's also kind of the you know domain of medical soft robotics. Uh, I'm not a, a, as much aware of um, what's been done in terms of. Commercial translation uh, of that, and it was obviously tremendous research that, that's going into it. Um, and so, I, I would expect that you know over the years um, there will be kind of a you know, growing um, uh, market for for those medical soft robotic technologies as well. And we'll kind of see what what kind of shape that takes. Um, and then the the other kind of big area is in wearables for virtual reality, for augmented reality, teleoperation, gaming. Uh, wearables that are not just uh, used for um, sensing and, and motion tracking, uh, but but also for haptic feedback. So these could be used for cutaneous uh, feedback or for um, uh, kinesthetic uh, feedback. Uh, and so that again, I I don't know of any kind of existing kind of uh, what existing size that market is or how significant that is. Um, you know, but that's also an area where there could be potential growth. So the you know the market forecast for soft robotics as a whole if you kind of take all of these different verticals, all these different um, uh, domains and combine them together, I mean, they project like something like 40% year, year over year growth. Um, and so for those of us who have startups or spin-off companies who have been trying to commercialize, um, at least what I've been learning uh, is that, um, you know there are certainly use cases out there where a lot of these soft robotic architectures and material systems, um, can address some of the acute needs right now that companies have and, and you know that consumers have, and and so there are kind of you know these these opportunities, uh, but the opportunities can sometimes be quite niche, you know, or they could be quite non-obvious, you know, they might not be for applications that people would associate with soft robotics. Uh, you know, we have a spin-off company with uh, from my lab, um, you know, where the interest for their materials is in uh, packaged microelectronics. You know, it has nothing to do with with um you know soft and stretchable circuits but kind of deals more with kind of more conventional uh computing hardware right but you know but these materials have certain advantages that, that other material systems don't um and the same is true in, in, in power tools you know uh um you know and uh, you know in, in, you know some some other domains that again you don't typically associate with with kind of soft robotic uh, applications so the material systems that we work with um uh, you know, so long as they do kind of exhibit unique combinations of properties, uh, can have uh, applications in areas that go well beyond just wearables or, or,
0: or soft mm-hmm. robotics. Interesting. So I don't know if you have any final message with like, say.
1: Sure. My, my, my final words uh, is that it's really exciting uh, to see how this field of soft robotics has continued uh, to develop. Um, I, I do think that we are at this juncture where we really need, do need to um, more aggressively uh, look at societal impact, look at commercialization of all of these technologies or, or ways that we can make impact in healthcare. Uh, you know, the, the, the you know, there's still going to be a, a lot of room for new discoveries and, and for uh, contributions from academia, um, but for the field as a whole to, to continue being successful uh, and to continue this, this trajectory of growth, we really have to go at this stage above and beyond, uh, you know, the, these kind of scientific discoveries and, and these academic uh, uh, explorations and really now start um, uh, finding uh, use cases that are of practical value uh, to, to kind of you know the, the wider um, uh, the wider society. Uh, so I think we're we're kind of at that point. We've seen evidence, at least in a few cases, of companies uh, that have been quite successful in, in taking soft robotic technologies out to market. Uh, and I think we need to see more of that uh, in, in, the, in the years to come.